Welcome everybody back to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham DeWeese. Back with me once again are Brian the Soul Man Solak and the damn dirty duck, Matthew Page. But never mind about those worthless losers. We got a winner. <laughs> we have a star. We have a champion for the people and the fan experience. Former former ESPN 710 uh, radio announcer, Danny O'Neill. Welcome. Thank you for being Thank on our show much, today. Abraham. I appreciate you guys having me on. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. Uh, and I need to tell everybody out there, this is not former Oregon Duck quarterback, Danny yeah. O'Neill. <laughs> uh, yes. It hasn't I, happened in a bit. I talked to Danny O'Neill, the former uh, Oregon quarterback, for oh, the first you? time a little bit earlier this year. Um, I think most people know. So he, he was a quarterback from Orange County, um, was actually a fairly high-profile recruit by the Ducks. Uh, Alabama and USC had both offered him scholarships. He went to, to U of O. His senior year is 94. And he he is responsible for one of the most painful losses in my college football fan experience because I went to the University of Washington. Uh, he's the quarterback that Rose Bowl season. And I would say it it happens less frequently now, but he, let's say every year or so, there's someone either via email or on Twitter or or even on the air who mistakes me for that Danny O'Neill. And it takes every bit of restraint I have <laughs> not to, cause I wouldn't be lying. Right. Like if they're, if they're, if it's their mistake that I'm that Danny O'Neill and I responded by saying like, I absolutely loathe that university. I don't have anything to do with them anymore. And I wish that people would stop asking me about the university of Oregon because it physically makes me sick. If they attributed <laughs> those to the other day, it wouldn't be my fault. Like I, it was, they made the mistake, like it doesn't seem, but I've never had the guts to do it. And then after I interviewed Danny O'Neill earlier this year, I also realized that's the right thing. Cause he seems to be an exceptionally nice person. In fact, much nicer than me. And that, that, that would be, a, that would be a rotten thing to do. <laughs> Didn't you write an article or were you going to write an article? Cause I thought I heard you interviewed his mom too, or. Uh, I did talk to his mom uh, okay. briefly, and she was super sweet. She thought it was just the funniest thing in the world that I <laughs> that there was this uh, sports media person named Danny O'Neill who wanted to talk to her son, Danny O'Neill. I did. I wrote about it. I've been doing a newsletter um, since uh, after after leaving 710 ESPN Sailor, which I guess leaving is what you say for fired. Uh, after I was I was I, I was I, I, I was I have sought other pursuits. I've been doing a newsletter, so I wrote about it there. It was really, really fun. I enjoyed it. Will you tell us a little, tell us a little bit about your newsletter? I'm so it's the name I'm it. still well the, name, still the kinda, name is great first of yeah, all Danny O Yo yeah <laughs> <laughs> all I could think of is there is a there is a uh, a female rapper uh, her name's Yo Yo and her first song was she t- and it was called You Can't Play with My Yo 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 and all plays <laughs> so anytime I say it I I kind of think of that but it's a it's a free newsletter you can sign up it's on Substack um I don't quite know exactly what I'm going to do with it long term. Um, I'm fortunate enough that some people are still interested in things I have to say and things that I'm working on. So I thought it was a good way to keep in touch with them as I kind of go on this. I'm, I'm not in a midlife crisis. I've been told that this is I'm more exploring what I want to do next that I've still probably got my midlife crisis somewhere out <laughs> in front of me. I just turned 47. But um, yeah, it's I I'm right mostly about things that I've been talking about. It's mostly still about Seattle sports that will probably change as things progress, because I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to keep covering Seattle sports, certainly not in the same way that I have been, but um, it's, it's been something that's been very fun for me. And it is a different format 
for connecting with people. I've enjoyed it a lot. So you can sign up. Um, it, it is it's if you search Danny O'Neill and Substack, S U B S T A C K, it'll come up or Danny O Yo uh, on Substack. Right, on. and that's O N I E L, right? O N E I L E I L. Okay, see, yeah, there's, that's there's correct. Yeah, we get we do, do the. It's not the I before E. It's the E then the I. There's only one L two. We lost that somewhere. That that's that's a subject of, <laughs> of much debate as well. At some point, my poor grandmother was harassed over in Ireland. She was told that too many people had died for that second L for us just to lop it off. And you're like, geez, man, she didn't have anything to do with that. Like, why are you giving her grief? <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> now, you, you, <laughs> you mentioned that you're not. That's story. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you mentioned that um, uh, you're not covering Seattle sports as much. That's because you've moved, right? You're in New York now? I, I did. I moved about two years ago, um, which oh, okay. was. Yeah. So um, in 2019, my wife was offered a job at the New York Times. Um, it was a really exciting opportunity. And I had been considering or, or looking at different things. It was a great chance for her. She had, she had recently gotten her MBA um, and had moved more toward the business side. And so we decided to move. And when she accepted the job, when we made that decision, it was my assumption, basically, that that meant that I'd be leaving the radio station. And they offered and were generous enough to offer a chance for me to continue working remotely. So we moved in, I, she moved in April of 2019. I moved in September. So I had been doing the show. And at, at the point that I relocated is when the show that I had been working on, Danny, Dave, and Moore ended. And I began working with Paul Gallant. So basically the two years that Paul and I did the show uh, I was living here in in, oh, in New York, okay. so I've I've been here since since the fall of 2019. Very good. Now you were actually uh, you were in print media as well, right? For a while. Correct. Yeah, that was about a decade that's, ago. Or that's what I'm actually supposed to be good at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's my background. Um, I had I went to the University of Washington um, in the 90s. I graduated in 97. I had a degree in history, but throughout I'd written at the the UW Daily, the school newspaper. Um, I'd worked and and at the Seattle Times my final year of college. I'd been preparing and working to be a print journalist. Um, and that that is what I became. I worked for a couple of years at ESPN.com and then in in 1999 became a, a high school sports reporter at the Seattle Times. And so from 99 through 2013, I worked as a daily newspaper reporter. Um, I covered high school sports, then the Seattle Sonics, RIP. Uh, then the Seattle Seahawks, and that was I was working as a beat reporter uh, covering the Seahawks for the Seattle Times up until 2013, when I'd done some work on radio. And I'm not sure which is more surprising that they liked what I'd been doing as far as an on-air host, or that I enjoyed that as much as I did. And so I I left the thing that I was trained to do to try something I really didn't know how I'd be at in being a daily radio host and then was fortunate enough to work for eight years at 710 ESPN Seattle. Okay. I'd like to go back to, you mentioned your wife's writing for the New York mm -hmm. Times. If you don't mind, she wrote an article in the Seattle Times back in, I think it was 2019, about someone very important to you. She called Hugs. Oh, my mom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that got me when she that, wrote about that. Yeah. That she got did. me too. <laughs> Yeah, it was very, um, 2019 was kind of a year that I'd gone through a lot of transition. My mom, um, had, she, she died in March 
of 2019. Um, she'd had, she, she was diagnosed with cancer in, in 2015 and it had been, um, at different points, it looked like things were going, going much, much better for her, but she ultimately, it was a, it was a, a liposarcoma. Um, and she ended up, she ended up dying from cancer and, I, I wrote about it um, and about how much my mom meant to me. And she was, she wasn't a single mom the whole time, but my dad had died when I was very young. And mm -hmm. so my mom has been the single most steady and loving presence in my life. And yeah, Sharon wrote about um, her experience with my mom and our, our backgrounds, my wife and I, our backgrounds are different. Um, Sharon was born in, in Orange County, California. Her parents had emigrated from Hong Kong. And, and Asian family dynamics are, are different than my, we're much more, my family was much more open with their emotions. And like my mom hugged Sharon from I, basically the first time that they met. And that became, that became Sharon's nickname for my mom was hugs oh. because yeah, we kind of <laughs> wear our heart on our sleeves and, and it was really touching for me because it, it is, it is different. Like I love her parents. My in-laws are absolutely some of my favorite people. And to know that Sharon felt the same about my family was really, really sweet. That, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. I mean, when she compared your mom to Mrs. Cunningham, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my mom did have that man. My mom, I, I grew up in, I grew up in Oregon. Um, I grew up in Klamath Falls, Oregon. That's where I lived until I was 15. And she was, my mom was a country cook, man. Cream of mushroom soup in the casseroles. <laughs> cornflakes on top. Uh, and she did, she made a couple of really, really, she made a good pumpkin pie. She made a good apple pie. Yeah. She was, she was a country cook. Right. Uh, and angel food cake. I heard that's yeah, that was, that was my dad's, <laughs> my dad's. And, and so now each time for her birthday or for mother's day, I'll make a, it's a 12 egg angel food cake. Uh, oh. my grandmother, who is the one I mentioned who got a little grief for our, our last name, having only one L she insisted that she could taste the difference in an angel food cake where the egg whites were whipped by hand, which if you've ever tried to whip 12 egg whites into, in, into your like, that's ridiculous. That's why, yeah. that, that's why we invented blenders or, or mixers, but she yeah. was, she was insistent. You could take, taste the difference. I, I use a stand mixer. I'm not, I'm not so hopelessly old fashioned, but yeah, <laughs> yeah the, 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 the 12 egg angel food cake is what I make for my mom's, my mom's birthday and mother's day. Right on. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you moving back towards, your career there with the 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 um the local beat uh -huh. your daily daily uh writing which sport or which which uh team and and which sport or say what was your uh was most fun to write about i guess is my question yeah that's so the things that i really enjoy the most um i like writing about things i don't know about okay. like the most the most fun for me is completely immersing myself in something that I don't really know about and getting to understand it well enough to write it. Um, and that's something that I've done less and less of over the term of my print career. And that kind of has to do with the logistics of being uh, a reporter. But for instance, um, I've just finished, uh, it's a freelance story and it's on the DB Cooper skyjacking. Oh. Um, I, it's probably going to run at some point in January. It'll run in the Seattle market. Um, but I got it. So it was the 50th anniversary of the DB Cooper skyjacking. Most people I think know what the case is, but it's the only unsolved skyjacking in American history day before Thanksgiving, 1971 dude gets on a plane in Portland, pays $20 for a seat to fly up to Seattle, 
gets on it, says he's got a bomb, demands $200,000 cash and four parachutes. It's 1971. We don't screen people before we get on planes. And apparently we still negotiate with terrorists because he gets the money and the parachutes in Seattle, then says we're going to fly to Mexico City, jumps out of the plane somewhere kind of south of St. Helens, north of Vancouver, never seen from again. And so I wrote about the case, but what I ended up writing about was the FBI agent who was assigned to the case that night. And he followed that case for the final 10 years of his FBI career. He lived a full life. Like he was 46 when that happened and he died at the age of 94. So lived an incredibly full life. I kind of wrote about how this guy who has become this footnote in this case, that's kind of too bad because he lived this incredible life and D.B. Cooper was only a small part of that life. So I wrote about it from that. And I loved the experience of sitting there and talking to his family and getting to know who he was. And he had a fascinating history on his own. He was a fighter. He became a, a military pilot and enlisted in the Army Air Corps in 1943. He was a lifelong pilot, learned to square dance in retirement, was a sung in a barbershop quartet. I love those kind of stories. Um, I loved learning about the UFC and, and writing about mixed martial arts fighting. Most of most of the time in covering sports, I spent most of my time covering the NFL, which is something that you get more and more experience with and you get better at it and you write better stories. But the parts that I've enjoyed the most have actually been the times that I've written about things that about which I don't really know that much and had to learn it. Makes sense. I mean, how many times can you write the Seahawks problem is their offensive line? I mean, that just yeah. <laughs> well, well, apparently wait, a number we, of them we, over these past 10 before years. Before we move on again, you, where can we look for uh, for your article? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I believe it's going to run in Pacific Northwest Magazine, which is the Sunday magazine okay. in the Seattle Times. I think they're looking um, at some point in, in January. I, okay. I hope I'm not getting the cartoon in front of the horse because I submitted a draft and it sounds like they liked it. But okay. I, I, you, you can never tell. They might decide I'm a hack and they don't want me a, a d- <laughs> disgracing the the, the the pages of their fine publication, but I, I think I think mid January is when it's scheduled to come out. Uh, it depends. How did you how did you leave the Times? Was there tables overturned? Was there which time? <laughs> I worked there three different times. <laughs> Twice I left on very good terms, and once I screwed up. <laughs> the the second time I left. So the first I worked there my final year of college, and then I got a uh, it was an internship at ESPN.com, and everybody was really happy for me. I came back to the Times because I wanted to be a reporter. I'd worked at ESPN, kind of decided that I didn't want to be an editor. And if I was going to work in sports, I wanted to be a reporter. That time when I left, I went to the Seattle PI, which was kind of the arch nemesis paper. Yeah. And I did it because I wanted to cover the Sonics. And I was, I was, I was headstrong. And man, I wanted something new. And I, I all of these. And that time, they didn't let me back in the building after I said I was going. They dropped my desk. Like they emptied my desk into a cardboard box. And one of the editors brought the box to my apartment. Like loose change was coming out the bottom when I picked it up. And in the one of the great regret, like one of the only real regrets I have is that I eventually got rehired at the Seattle Times. And that was four years later. And I learned a lot by that process um, of, of leaving and kind of understanding how to leave a job on good terms and, and the reasons and how, what is a good rationale for changing jobs and what is sort of maybe a little more immature and just sort of petulant um, is that I was able to come back, but I regret 
not loading a bunch of stuff into a box and saying, hey, I still got my stuff from my desk last time. Let's fire this up and let's go, baby. I, I, I wasn't able to do that. But then and then the third time when I left the Seattle Times, um, it was it was very it was incredibly supportive. Um, and I, I love I love that newspaper and a lot of the people there. Nice. You, you covered the Sonics. I know. Would you care to share one favorite moment covering the Sonics? So this, how my favorite moment. And the thing I think I like to tell, there's a lot of really fun stuff that happened. I loved covering the NBA. Um, it was, it's really hard from a scheduling perspective um, because you travel a ton. Like I was spending 50 or 60 nights on the road and their road trips are, I mean, three games in three cities in five days. It's, it's a really taxing, um, taxing schedule, not just on you, but I was, I had a girlfriend. We're now married my wife. I was, and we were living together about midway through my time on the beat. If I stayed on that beat much longer, I don't, I think she was going to kick me to the curb because it's Uh not fair to have a partner. That's that gone that long. And even when you're home, you're working nights, but I, I loved covering the league itself. I had a really good time. The, my favorite moment So Ray Allen was the star on the team for two and a half of the seasons that I worked there. I began covering that team the year that Gary Payton was traded for Ray Allen. I got to know Ray pretty well. Um, Ray and I are about the same age. And there was one time where he was talking in particular about. He (laughs) he was talking about how that it was his younger sister and how he didn't particularly like the boyfriend she had. There was some sort of issue that had come up with the car that he bought for his sister and how the boyfriend had used it. And it was just basically, and he was kind of saying like one of the really tough things is that when you have a younger sister and you don't like the person they're with, you can't tell that to them. Like you can't say that to them because it will make them angry at you and probably, and there's a chance it will make them more likely to hold on to that boyfriend and my sister. Now I had not bought a car for my younger sister, but was pretty much in the exact same thing where I was like, I do not know why she's messing with this dude. (laughs) And so I, as Ray was saying it, I was like, Ray, we're about the same age. You're probably going to make what? 88, $89 million on this contract. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get to a million. I might never reach a million in career earnings. (laughs) Like you buy art to collect. Like I occasionally am able to afford a museum admittance, but like in this one thing, in this one thing, I know exactly where you're coming from. We're right there. (laughs) Like this is the exact, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's like, I've got to bite my tongue about what I say because she's going to get mad at me if I was like, Oh yeah, shocking that he's not working or something like that. You you drive a Ferrari and I've got a Mazda red pickup truck. But right here, you and I were operating on the same wavelength. And I always because covering pro athletes, which I truly love. Like I've I really I've enjoyed and I still enjoy talking to two players that I've covered. But they live a completely different life. Like there's no there's there's no way to compare what their work experience what their career expectancy, the pressures that they face from not just their employers and not just fans, but from, from family and like the expectations, it's a totally, like they did, they live a completely different life, but there are times where you're like, yeah, no, that's kind of the same. Like we're (laughs) in our late twenties and we're both kind of feeling the exact same thing right now. 
That's funny. And what's the first <laughs> thing we always do as friends or relatives when that relationship breaks up? We go say, we never liked that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when that happened, I was like, thank God, man. Oh. And then two days later, they're back together and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> exactly. And that's the other thing. Like, you can't even know when they broke it up. Like, it's got to be, what, six, seven months? That you right. That, before and, you're like, yeah. yeah. First one never takes. First breakup never takes. You got to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you covered the Seahawks, too. Do you, when you were writing, did you have a favorite moment with the Seahawks you care to share? I loved that 2012 and 2013 seasons because there were such compelling characters on those teams. Uh, Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman and Marshawn Lynch, Russell Wilson, watching that group sort of recognize the potential that they had and then how they pulled that all together and sort of the coach. It was really fun to experience that um, and to kind of have a perspective to be able to watch it happen. Um, those are some of the more incredible athletes that I've ever been around, both in terms of their psychological makeup and how they played on the field. And it's, you don't often see any good team is going to have fans, right? Like anytime a team gets good, you're, you're going to see, uh, people in the stands and people are going to like them. There are teams that are not just good, but connect with the heart of a city. Mm-hmm. And that, that 2012, 2013 Seahawks team did that. It, it, it was more than just a great team that people liked. Like there was something about it in the same way that the Mariners, like the Ichiro year Mariners did mm-hmm. or the 95 Mariners 95, did. Yeah. Yeah. That there's, there's something that happens where it just, it's more than the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl in 2005 and it was a really good team. And people love the players on that team. They love Sean Alexander and they love Walter Jones. And people love Matt Hasselbeck. There was something different about that 2012 and 2013 Seahawks team. And I think some of it was kind of the edge that those guys played with. Seattle's this passive aggressive city and you had this aggressive, aggressive cornerback and this running back who would not be denied and just, it was it was a really it was a really fun group and I I mean I loved covering all of those guys. Um, even people say like Marshawn Lynch was difficult with the media. He wasn't difficult with the media. He just didn't want to be interviewed. Yeah. Like yeah. he and as a reporter or as a media member, if somebody doesn't want to talk to you, that's their prerogative. And really, with Marshawn, it was that he didn't want other people telling his life story. He didn't like how he was described by some people. So he decided he didn't want to participate in that process. And I was one person who was like, you're never going to hear me play, complain about an athlete who decides not to talk. If they, they don't want to answer questions, they shouldn't have to. And that's, that's their prerogative. And Marshawn, Mar- Paul Westfall used to say about Charles Barkley that there are a lot of guys there's a lot of mean guys trying to pretend they're good guys. Charles Barkley's the only good guy that I know that pretends like he's a bad guy. And Marshawn didn't pretend like he was a bad guy, but Marshawn was the person who came off to some people and in some, in some ways that he was characterized as being someone who was rude. And he was not. Like he was, it's, my mom 
this was the first, it would have been the first year after he retired. The Seahawks played at Oakland uh, in their final preseason game, like they did every year. And I was down there to cover that game. And we stayed at, uh, I was staying at the Oakland Marriott, which is four blocks from like his beast mode store. And so my mom came over, we went out to breakfast and then I went over to, I knew that Marshawn was going to be at his store. So I figured like, well, let's walk over there and see who's there. And like Doug Baldwin, and a couple players were over there and Marshawn came over and like helped my mom pick out a t-shirt, like put his arm around her, called her baby girl. Like it was just like, I t- took a picture with her that I still, that I still have. That's one of my favorite things. Like that's an example of like, yeah, Marshawn didn't ever sit down and want to do a, an interview about his life story. He was, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the most meaningful moments that a player, like really generous, like he didn't have to do that at all. Yep. And it, it, it was a great day for me and my mom. That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah. I think he was, he was portrayed raw. Well, you know, I think the national media took offense that he wasn't willing to answer questions. It's and... such a weird thing to me. Like <laughs> it's, and I guess we get it because there is a desire to have access which I yeah. understand, mm-hmm. but essentially when leagues require players to talk, it's a league PR policy. Like that's not some sort of first amendment press, right? Like you don't have as a, as a media member, you don't have a right to get free tickets to go see a game and talk to the players afterwards. Like that's not covered by the bill of rights. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that leagues and teams decide on because it generates coverage, which is essentially free advertising for them. Right. Like that's like the actual breakdown and mechanics of it is it's a PR function a long time ago when they still struggled to sell tickets or decide like they were like, this is a great way. We just let the reporters come and cover us and we have our players talk to them and then they write about it and more people come and see us. And somehow that's got twisted around into like, no, it's my right to do this. Like, no, it's not your right. And if you complain about a grown man deciding he doesn't want to answer your questions, like how spoiled and entitled are you? Like he has a right to say, no, I don't want to answer those questions. Um, Absolutely. Uh, But I wanted to ask you about your time covering. You said you covered prep sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you do all kinds of sports or football or? Oh, I did. I did all kinds. I covered mainly the Kinko conferences. So there were at that time, there was Kinko 3A and Kinko 4A. Um, so I covered, it was about 20 schools. Those were my main and I covered it, uh, throughout. So all sports, um, we, we mainly, the main emphasis of coverage was a lot of football and then boys and girls basketball. Mm -hmm. And then probably after that, it was softball and baseball, but I, I wrote about swimming and I would write about, uh, gymnastics. Like you would cover all of those different sports. Um, and I did that for three years. Yeah, three years. So you were hitting you were hitting the various uh, you know football games on Friday yeah. nights and, and and Friday night lights. Yeah, and I got to cover. I there was really an especially basketball. Um, the 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 caliber of of players that I got to cover was incredible. I covered Brandon Roy, I covered mm. Jamal Crawford, um, Jamal, whom I still talk to. Um, Brandon, I have not seen in a while, but I had, a, I, I really loved and kept in touch with Brandon as well. Tim Lincecum was a pitcher in high school. Lincecum, I went down, he pitched at Liberty high school in, in Renton, or mm-hmm. I guess it's Issaquah, but it's kind of out there in the hinterlands. And I went and saw him as a junior and he had great stats. And I came away from that. And I was like, I don't even think that guy's going to pitch in college. He's too small. 
And so I always tell people about like those, any sort of, any, any sort of, any sort of idea that you get about like, oh, I've got some sort of eye for talent or something like you'll see something like that. Like he was, I mean, dude, he continued. I thought his arm was basically going to come off of his body because he was so lean and how hard he threw instead dudes, a Cy Young award winner. So I always, I always like to say that because Lincecum in that league, there was a guy named Tripper Johnson from Newport high school who was, I think he was probably considered the better all around prospect. He went straight into the pros. He, he signed a contract with the Orioles straight out of high school. I think he was a sandwich round pick. Um, but Nate Robinson, I can remember seeing Nate Robinson as a sophomore. Um, it was, it, there was a pretty remarkable Isaiah Standback was another uh, player that I got to know in, in high school and continued to see and cover over the course of his career. I, I loved covering high school sports. Very cool. All right. So you're no longer in the Seattle area. You're not watching it as much, but that's okay. We have some questions. Maybe you can give us some non, maybe you can get us, give us some perspective as someone who's not living here, watching the Seahawks every day and this utter disaster of a Monday night football game. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. It was a a tough watch. It was a tough watch. Is it, is it it done? Is it done, Danny? Are we done? Seahawks done for this year or forever? Uh, this this regime, the current the current dynasty yeah. or regime, yeah. Uh, I think there's some tough questions that have to be answered, and I have waffled over over the direction that I would go. Here's what I would say: the first the first decision isn't really a decision that Seattle has to make. The first decision will be Russell's, right? Russell, if Russell doesn't want to be traded, Russell won't be traded. He has a no trade clause. He has two years left on his contract. But I think we all look at that and say, if after a a season in which they won 12 games and made the playoffs for the third straight time, if he was unhappy with the direction that things were headed and how things had transpired, that is nothing compared to how he's going to feel after this year. So that's the first thing that sort of that's the the unknown that Seattle, you don't know how Russell Wilson is, is, is going to be. If I had to guess, I think that Russell's going to be more adamant and more clear cut about his desire to change teams this off season. But that's just my guess. We don't know. The second thing, if you're Seattle, you have to decide why Russell is having this sort of season. It is not a mystery to me why Seattle is three and eight. They're three and eight because their quarterback who has become increasingly the one thing that has kept them above sort of afloat these past three to four seasons that he, the team has come to increasingly rely upon him for everything that they do. He's, he's got to compensate for a defense, which by the way, right now, I know they're not allowing a ton of points, but that defense is still bad. He's got to do, he's got to, he's the one that has to counteract all of that. It is the fact that he's hurt and now less effective and they're three and eight. Like that's, that's the reason is that he's not playing as well. Why? Is it because of injury? It might be. Is it because he's, we don't know how he's going to age because we've come to assume that quarterbacks stay great until they're 40, right? That they thrive through the thirties. Hell, Tom Brady's kind of pushing that into mid forties, but Russell's a more mobile quarterback and Russell has taken hits over the course of his career. And Nobody expected him to remain as elusive as he was when he was in his mid twenties, but we all thought his understanding of defenses, his, his ability to, to sort of to beat teams at the line of scrimmage rather than running away from it will compensate for anything he loses in that. Well, is, is his best football behind him? 
He's 33, just turned 33. That's fairly young for a quarterback, but has he reached a tipping point? That's That would be the second option of the first option. He's just hurt. He's never missed games because of injury. He clearly is less accurate right now. He's just hurt. That's all that's wrong. The second one is, okay, he's kind of hit that tipping point. He's on the downhill slope of his career, and it's happening earlier than it did for guys like Drew Brees and hasn't happened yet for Brady or Peyton Manning because, well, either he relied more on his mobility or he hasn't been able, but he's on the downhill. The third one is that this is a guy that doesn't really want to be here, that this is Randy Johnson in 98, and Mm -hmm. that was... That's a little bit unfair because Randy Johnson's record, I think he was nine and 10 with the Mariners and he had like a a four something ERA. He gets traded. He gets traded to the Astros and he becomes just nails, right? He's 10 and one. His (laughs) ERA is like 1.23 or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. And and then he wins the next four Cy Youngs after that. Like is, and it, you look back on it and you're like, okay. Seattle just mismanaged that relationship. They made him mad. He wasn't as engaged. And as soon as he got out of here, things took off. Is it that sort of situation? And if it's, if it's either one or three, if your answer is either one or three, that it's just an injury with Russell or Russell's just unhappy and Russell wants to leave. I think you do everything you can to make him happier here. Like you, you really do try to repair that relationship. If it gets to a question of, are you choosing Russ or Pete? And I'm not sure exactly how it would get to that point. I don't know if I go with Russ though, like all of that said, so do I think everybody's going to be back? No, I don't. Do I think that Seattle should try to choose Russ over Pete? No. I think if it comes down to a choice between them, you, you look to move Russ, get what the best that you can. And, and keep Pete Carroll as your head coach. And that's something that I'm waffling about and changed yesterday. I had a different answer to that. But today, I, 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 think, I think that's the direction I would go is to say you, you, the, the best case scenario is that you can get things ironed out between everybody and, and, and try to reboot next year. If that's not possible, I think I'd rather move the quarterback than the coach. Do you think the owner, jo- her name's Jody Allen. Mm-hmm. You think she's got the, pardon the phrase, but the balls to do anything about it, to give Schneider a kick in the, you know what, and tell him he needs to make some changes or you think it's, she's just going to stay back or. I don't know from this regard that we haven't seen what kind of decisions she makes when it's just her, but she's been involved with Paul's, sports operations and she was someone who played a role in the portland trailblazers in the past she hasn't really as much from what i understand with the seahawks from what i know of jody and 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 her practices she's not afraid of making changes okay and she's not someone who is going to be she has been willing and at times has made decisions that have angered people and felt that I've, I've heard her described as meddling, which is a term that often gets applied to women executives or more frequently applied to women executives and women owners than the male owners that I feel that what, what we describe as strength for male leaders can often be described as, as somehow uh, in a negative term for women. But yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know, Brian, but I, I would say this, that I don't think that that my inclination is to say that she's going to take a more passive approach than, than somebody else would have. It, it would, it's in the best interest of the organization to keep everyone there, but that simply might not be possible. And as you mentioned, like a, a, a change, 
I don't, I don't expect, I don't expect everybody back next year. I don't expect if you say that the three most important people in this franchise are Schneider, Carroll, and Russell Wilson, I don't expect that all three are coming back next year. Okay. Interesting enough. Um, So I want to talk about the lockout that just began today. Uh, Major League Baseball shut down. How long do you think this, uh, this is going to go on? Not looking at a calendar. I'm going to say that it's going to go seven days past the point when they say regular season games will be affected. (laughs) That's, that's basically the playbook for (laughs) for these sort of things (laughs) is that owners have learned that when you do a lockout, the best time to start it is well in advance of games being played in the hopes that the fans will forget you're the one that started the fight. Yeah. Like they, they, right. This is, this is what's happened in the NFL as they start the lockout and then things kind of drift along and there's now no urgency to get anything done. Deadlines usually get deals done. And usually what I've, my experience has been that they'll set a date where, okay, if it goes beyond this regular season games will be affected. And then usually the deal gets done within a week of that deadline and no regular season games are affected. So that's what I think will happen here. I think it will impact spring training. Um, I think that in all of these sort of labor standoffs, I do not for the life of me understand why people choose to side with the billionaire owners over the millionaire players. I, I think the owners, and I think that what baseball is doing, what they, they announced today that they were going to, the coverage on MLB.com is going to change and they're going to write more about historical things rather than present teams. Like how stupid is that? Like I, we're, we're going to, we're going to undermine our own marketing arm for the product that we're going to hope that you buy next spring, because we want, we want to create the impression that this game is being taken away from you because the players won't accept what we're telling them to. I, I, I don't have much patience for the owner's side of things in these, in these sort of negotiations. Okay, here we go. All right. So <laughs> the reason why fans have a problem with the players, although it's kind of funny because fans use the word strike. This is not a strike. This is nope, it's a, lockout. a lockout. It's kind of funny how fans do that, but, but there is a certain, uh, Je- jealousy, I think, is the the right way to fr- yeah. frame this, and that jealousy is if only I could hit a homer and throw a hundred mile an hour fastball, mm-hmm. I wouldn't complain. People yeah. say it all the time. They say it all the time, and but they can't throw a hundred mile an hour fastball. No, like they no. they can't they can't do that. Can't. Nobody's asking them to do anything. You pay pay a nickel to watch them play baseball. But I but I think it's if that's the root of it, I think that's a fair because that's a human emotion, right? It's, it's something, it's something that you see, something that you perceive someone being ungrateful about, whereas you would be grateful. And that, that's why I don't really, I I think the players and owners to blame. I I don't equally, I I don't really care about that, but I mean, I I can see where fans get upset about these kind of things about players. Um, You were mentioning the disassociation between your life and Ray Allen's. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, until you find a commonality, it, it, it does seem like they're living in fantasy land. And they do. Yeah. But so do movie stars. Right. And so do music like rock yeah. stars. It's I get what you're saying. It's not illogical. It's not it's not illogical. Like I get the rationale for it. I think it's dramatically misguided. The people that make and play professional sports are the 
0.005% of the 1%. Like it's so, and to think that our lives, like to think that my life bears any resemblance to Ray Allen's, like Ray Allen can do something at a level that I can't even imagine. Like the thing that he's best at, he is so much better than me at the thing that I'm best at. And not only that, but for whatever reason, society's decided that the thing he's best at is super fun to watch. So he makes a ton of money. And it's I, I, I get what you're saying. It's it's not illogical, but the part of it, there's a certain amount of, I guess, the jealousy that I think yeah. I think it's unbecoming. It's- and I identify jealousy as a trait that it is a human emotion, yeah. but it's something that I don't want to give into. And I don't want to let jealousy either motivate I want to take jealousy out of the opinions right. that, that I form or the right. way that I look at life because it'll, it'll end up making you miserable. I, I don't disagree with you, but I think there's a difference. You mentioned rock stars or movies. Mm-hmm. The fundamental uh, difference there is identity where I don't identify as being an actor and I don't identify as being a musician. I oh, can barely everybody's sing. played sports, but wow. I, no, 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 actually no. I identify with a, piece of laundry as Jerry Seinfeld would call, would call uh-huh. it, right? It has the word Seattle on the front. Yeah. And that's my identity through that. Oh, uh, okay. He says as he's wearing a fictional team. I, no. <laughs> I, yes, I, I am wearing a fictional that, jersey. But <laughs> right, like you've got, to, if there's a band you like and they do something you don't like, you can just decide to not like that band anymore. But if you've got a team that you like and a, a, a group of players yeah. on it, or you're disappointed in them somehow, like you have to really hate them because you can't just quit the team because it's your team. Like you have as much and probably more ownership of it over it than they do. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Cause it's the community you identify with. It's a com- it's your community. It's not, it's not, you know, it's just, it's the city, it's Seattle. It's not, you know, or the university, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, even, the a, that's even a closer so, connection, yeah. but yeah. But anyway, fair enough. I don't know why I'm going after a guest. So, you guys need to stop me from going after the guest. That was great. That was awesome. No, no, Raise a good point. Yeah, I, 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 that's that's the sort of stuff that I think is the best about these sort of discussions. No, heck no. And remember, he works with Mitch Levy too. So I do. I do talk to Mitch and Mitch. Yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed that. I've had a fun time talking to Mitch. Right on. How long have you known him for, for quite a while? Uh, I. 2008 or 2009 i think okay. is when i started appearing on i was covering eh, i guess the first time i went on his show was 2005 when i'd started covering the the seattle seahawks uh for this that that was the first time i had talked and gone on shows with other guys uh at different points but that was that was the first time that i I'd, I'd started talking to him and i've always enjoyed mitch i think i think mitch is an extraordinary host i think he's really 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 talented um broadcaster yes he is he's a character Seattle Mariners, are we headed in the right direction? It seems like they are. I think so. I think that there's always a danger when you have a team like last year that exceeds projections, not exceeds expectations, but exceeds projections. We know more now about how to how like expected wins, like what 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 a team that does this certain amount of things you should expect them to do. And it's clear that last year's team whether it was because of good fortune or because of the camaraderie that they had or their late game performance, like whatever, like they, they won more games than you would expect given the statistics that they compiled, but it's a young team. And so I do think that you're going to see improvement that 
you can run into you can run into trouble when you have a team that exceeds expectations and then you bring everybody back the next year and you're like, wait, why isn't it working the same? And you're like, well, you brought the same guys back. And this is kind of the this is the regression to the mean. Um, I like the, this the addition of Robbie Ray. It's an expensive purchase. And that's oh. that's that's a that's a guy that signed for a one year, eight million dollar contract last year. And you're paying him. $23 million a year over the next five years. Mm-hmm. That said, he's different. He's, he's a hard thrower. And the big difference last season was, is that he, he fixed his control problems. And if, if that stays fixed, or if that becomes kind of, he's, he's more accurate than he has been earlier in his career, that I think you're going to feel really good about it. And the fact is, is that when you're the Mariners, you have money to spend right now. And you you have to you had to make additions. I, I I would I'm much happier that they paid him as opposed to saying we'll we'll keep Yusei Kikuchi at fifteen million dollars a year. Um, I I I I think I think that this gives a chance. It he's your ace. He's going to be your best. Oh, yeah. He's 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 your he's your your day one starter. And then you have Logan Gilbert, and then you have Marco Gonzalez. It kind of puts everybody in the right spot in the rotation now. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question about a person that I constantly am having to defend on this podcast and, and, uh, I don't know why, but, uh, Jerry DePoto, what's your, what are your thoughts on him? What do you think of him as a GM? I'm I his biggest that, champion on this. Yeah. Song. <laughs> I like some of the things that Jerry does. Um, I, I do. Jerry makes a lot of moves and he's, he's a volume shooter like when it comes to that and that, that can drive people nuts. And there are two things that will happen when you do that. Um, one is you are going to give up talent at different points. Like you're going to, you're going to lose guys because you're aggressive and making a lot of trades and saying like, Hey, let's run through these. Chris Taylor's a great example. Like that, that was a mistake. And that's, that's going to happen. When you do that, you're also going to hit on some guys that you don't expect to. And I like, I, I really do like the some of the under the radar kind of additions that they've made. Like when they signed Austin Nola and then ended up being able to flip him as part of that deal that got like a long term, like Austin Nola was a really great signing and, and it's paid off to them in a number of different prospects. I, I, I like how aggressive he's been. Um, I think as much as the Abraham Toro trade at the time, was tough to make sense of. I think we all look back at it and you look at the money that Kendall Graveman got in free agency. Like, was that a good trade? Yeah, I think it, I think it was. Um, So I like what he's doing. It's always hard to find in a vacuum. I think we're about to enter the point where we, where we're able to say, is Jerry DePoto the right guy for the job? Because he's now going to have to, he's going to have some money. And he's going to have to make the additions that put the team over the top. They've, I think that they've very effectively accomplished what they set out to do when they really earnestly said, we're going to step back and rebuild. I think that they've done that really well. Now can they get over the hump? Excellent. Question for you about uh, fan fandoms. Uh, you're in New York now. You've been there for a few years. Uh, you grew up here, though, in Seattle, so you do know the... Uh, the fervor and the the desire to have a good baseball team, which I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe dead now. But uh, do you notice a difference in a fan base like uh, the Mariners uh, versus one on the East Coast? I mean, we talk about it all the time that 
what we put up with other areas don't. Yeah, it's an interesting. So there is a difference. There's no doubt about that. Um, there is being a Yankee fan is a much more annoying experience. Like you are born to be more annoying than a Mariners fan. Like it is your lot in life. Like there's, and, and they are different. Each, each city is, is different. Mets fans are very different. Mets fans are much more mellow. Uh, Mets fans do not have the sense of entitlement that Yankee fans have. Um, certainly New York fans are much more willing to cut loose and tell players that they stink and feel that you guys aren't worthy of representing this team. Whereas I think in general on the West coast, people just stop paying attention. I, I, I think that that's, and I think that is in some ways a regional difference. Part of it, I think just boils down to outlook and that in, in the West there is, there isn't that same sort of simmering anger that is just below the surface. Like we're just more like, meh, I'm not going to deal with that. Um, I don't think that the demands, the demanding nature of fans or the media has anything to do with why teams are or are not successful. I don't think that the Yankees have a better team because their fans and their front office demand more. I think the Yankees have a better team because they spend so much more money that they can pay their way out of mistakes that other teams can't. That 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 that's that there's not some sort of and the Boston Boston media does not make the Patriots great because they're they're unwilling to accept a loser because up until Bill, Bill Belichick got there with the exception of the Bill Parcells year in the 1985 Super Bowl run, that Patriots were one of the worst teams in the entire NFL. So I, I think that what you're talking about is real, like that, that people do view it differently. I don't think it explains the lack of success in, in, in Seattle that, that we're too passive about it. You, you talk about spending money. Um, I, wanna, I don't know how closely you follow the New York Mets, but they just spent probably – Three four hundred million dollars on, on four different, oh, close enough, but <laughs> on on players that besides Max Scherzer, I think they're, they're all the other signings were worthless signings. I mean, I think the organization's a I'm not going to swear, but it's a <laughs> crap show, and they don't have a GM or they, they just hired a GM who was a reject from the L- LA Angels, and yep. they don't have a manager. I mean, what, what's going on with these Mets? Are these, do you how? Closely, do you follow them? Is there a chance? Is there a chance? They spend enough money and they do have enough talent that, that there's a shot. I, I think it's unlikely. And I think they're a terribly run organization. And yeah. the, one of the truly funny things that happens out here, and it's happened at times to the Mariners too. When you watch a team try to buy its way to relevance, there's nothing that I think is more hilarious than watching that result in a belly flop. Yeah, like it's, when a team tries to piece together, I guess we're seeing that a little bit. It's not so much money like what's happening with the L.A. Rams right now, I think is hilarious. There's nothing I enjoy more than a team sitting there and walking in and 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 sort of like, I'm going to come in with the big belt buckle and look, everybody's got to take into account what I'm going to do. Money bags is here. And then they're absolutely <laughs> Like, I, 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 I think that that's one of the great things that happens in sports. Well, and that's, that's one. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was gonna say that's one of the problems with the whole lockout, right? Uh, owners are talking out both sides of their mouth. They're saying, uh, you know, we, we got to keep these costs under control, but you got the Dodgers, the Yankees and the Mets 
out there spending money like there's no tomorrow. Why should we care about rich guys spending money? But I, I, we I, should because the there's other teams that are not spending money. Their but owners are not on the same page. And, and do that, you can't. It's a bad system when you have, when you mandate, it's a, it's a bad system if you have it that we have to make sure that these other lesser teams are financially competitive because that's just not that, that that's a license for the rich guys to make more money. Like that's a license. And that's when, that's when I think things become rigged and they really, you should have to share the profits with the people that make them with the players. I, I didn't that ruin, I get what didn't yeah, that ruin hockey? It's, I, I don't, I feel zero. I see, I feel zero desire to have some sort of actual limit on what rich guys do with their money. I think they should be able to set it on fire if they want to. What about the opposite end that, you know, Abraham mentioned, like, for example, the Pittsburgh pirates who have been milking the, you know, the luxury tax uh, revenue sharing and intentionally not competing. You could argue, uh, yeah. for a decade or more. I mean, they're just, their, their payroll is one of the lowest. They, they won't put any money in and, they keep rebuilding. I'm using quotes, uh, and it's it's got to be frustrating. There's got to be a way to, to to force the team to at least up to a certain level. Level. I mean, I've got I've got the way. Oh, it, it's the magic bullet, and it works in all sports. Relegation. Oh. <laughs> Promote the Everett Aqua Sox to take their place. Exactly. <laughs> or, and this is this is the alternative thing. If your team. We, we set some sort of Mendoza line for franchises mm-hmm. like within this five year span, you have to make the playoffs or you're if you're below a certain thing. If you failed, if you're below the Mendoza line over that five year span, your team gets put up for auction like you lose your right to have the team and you can bid on it and you can retain it if you want to. But it it, it, it gets put up for auction and get somebody else in there that either is willing to spend more money or spend is capable of spending the money in a smarter way. Because I, I appreciate what you're saying of teams are gaming it right yeah. now. I, the Tampa Bay Rays are da- gaming it and they're just so good at scouting that yeah. they're still winning while they're doing it. Yeah. But that, that, that idea of, and that's why steps taken to sort of create a more fair financial playing field they ultimately end up helping the owners because, <laughs> because those, those guys still don't want to spend the money. So my, my vote is number one relegation. If it, it would eliminate tanking in the NBA tanking, tanking is ridiculous. Yeah. And the reason that it's, it's around is because it's the smart thing to do. If you're going to be a mediocre to bad team in the NBA, you might as well not make the playoffs and have a shot at getting the top pick because maybe then you will get a transformative player tanking smart. It's it's awful. It, it it is horrendous for your product. And if you created, if if you did create relegation, it would create a, a such a strong disincentive because you can't fall out of the league because then you lose all the TV money. So yeah. we need to bring back relegation or institute relegation because yeah. it doesn't happen in European soccer. If you're an idiot and you're you're a terribly run franchise. Your team goes down and you lose significant amounts of money. And then if it was a big rich guy, maybe he gets bored and sells it to someone who can actually do something with it. And this wouldn't be that hard. You're looking at 30 teams in baseball. You just basically have one league of 20 and a, another league of 10, right? Yeah. And or something. Yes. Or 15 or, or and 15. Or or, the auctioning off of a team. Like, why do you have the right to hold on to a team in perpetuity 
and hold those fans hostage. Like if you're a Washington football team fan, I mean, first of all, you're happy that you no longer have the epithets. To, to, <laughs> the, 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 your nickname is no longer a racial slur. So that's a sign of progress. But you've been for 20 years, you've been in a hostage situation. Yeah. Like you have a terrible owner who presides over a place of rampant sexual harassment. And you've got no like, what's your recourse? Like, w- why should he be able to hold on to this legacy seat at an ant- with an antitrust exemption? Like, we should create like, let's get some senators involved. Like, shouldn't for the public good, like you shouldn't get your your seat at this this professional sports league trough if you're terrible. <laughs> Did I sell you guys? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm in. I'm on board. I'm in. Yeah, definitely. I definitely <laughs> think it's people if it gets teams, if it gets, if it gets more parity in the league and, and it makes a better product and it's better for the players in terms of like right now and like in Major League Baseball, one of the big issues is there's no middle class of players. There's the superstars getting the millions. And the last couple off seasons, it's like they just sit there and wait on all these veterans who should get, you know, 10 million a year deal or something like that in the middle of the range. And they just sit on them and then they have to accept like spring training starts and they're like, okay, fine. I'll take a major league invite, you know, or whatever. There's no middle class and, and they need to, they need to address it. There needs to be a little more equality in the pay. I agree with the fans or the players on that aspect. Yeah, who do you whose fault? Because I blame the owners for that. The similar a similar argument's been made it's in the kind NFL. Kind of collusion a little bit. On that. Yeah, I, well, I think there is. I don't know. And, if it's, I don't know if it's the owners. I think it's that. I, I think it's that you have this rule. Well, this could, I guess, be the owners. You have that rule where uh, kids who get drafted they get paid on scale rather yes. than yeah, uh, you know, rather than negotiate with the with the teams. They used to be able yes. to negotiate their pay. And so what that makes is like it makes rookies and uh, young guys cheap, and um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I that's part of it. I th- it's a bunch of things because there's also the whole the, there's the whole idea too. Like Matt was talking about Pittsburgh, why why mm-hmm. pay why pay a middle level guy? Um, well, I mean, you have take no- for example Kyle Seeger. You know, he, mm-hmm. he he was great for the Mariners and everything. He's still got left him. You know, obviously he's still got a couple good years left in him. Um, he's a great bat, uh, power wise. He maybe contact is kind of weak, but he's a good, he's a good, uh, you know, towards the bottom of the order, great bat, great glove third baseman. And those are in desire. They're people need them, but he's probably only going to get like, I mean, and he should get, you know, 10 to $12 million at least, maybe at least a one year contract. He's probably going to have to wait until spring training starts and get like an invite and maybe like a $5 million deal at most because that middle, that middle class doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And he I think be getting yeah, more. I think the main reason that middle class doesn't exist anymore is because teams realize and know that the most valuable players are in that six year yeah. window of where they're either on they're either arbitration eligible, what, what they call player control, that they're yeah. under player control. And so the guys that aren't under player control, the, the free that become free agents, the ones that are worth it are the guys that are truly exemplary, yeah. the true stars. And when you get into that, what we're talking about is the middle-class player. It's the yeah. guy that's got 10 years of history and is still a functional bat. You're like, do I want to pay him $8 million or do I want to get a guy who's, maybe almost as good, but still has some upside left that I pay half that. And the owners, I'll be surprised. 
I don't think they're going to give away anything with regard to player control. If they sat there and said, okay, instead of six years of player control, four years of player control. The, the, the Players Association, I'm sure, would agree to that right away. There's no way the owners are going to give that to them because they're like, no, that's our cost-controlled labor. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to make those guys richer sooner than we have to. And, and you're seeing teams, why are they buying out guys' arbitration years? Well, because they can get them cheaper. So yeah. they identify a guy that's, that, that, that's a stud earlier. And all of those things are de- the, the goal of all the teams is to reduce the amount that they end up paying for the talent that they have. Danny, Matt was telling me that the owners want a uh, two division, two division uh, uh, player. Uh, one, it was either the players or the, t- or the um, owners. I forget. I think it was the players. Was it the player? Okay. What, what it kind of tells two me. Two divisions within each conference. What that kind of tells mm-hmm. me is two more expansion teams. What do you think? That's the setup. Yeah. So you have eight and eight in each. It would make, that would make sense. I don't have anything against adding, adding teams. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think that that would disrupt anything. I, I do. I don't like the three divisions because it creates scenarios where like this year, the Braves make the playoffs with fewer wins than the, than the Mariners have had. And obviously they're different leagues and that wouldn't have affected it. But because you have three divisions, you get more of that. And I, I, I would, I would prefer, I would prefer fewer divisions. I, I, I could two divisions in each league. I, I could see working really, really well. I think the idea is that they would, it would be, a, you know, a seven and an eight, you know, West and an East in each, in each con each league. And then that would kind of lay the framework so that right. five you years down eight. the road, they do an expansion once, once the whole Tampa Bay, Oklahoma or Oakland, I mean, not Oklahoma. Oh, once the Tampa Bay, Oakland thing kind of they work themselves out because where do you think Oakland's going? Do you think they'll end up in Vegas? They were, they were apparently there visiting, they were visiting. Uh, what, the Tropicana this week. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, why not? I, yeah. I think, I think that's where most leagues are going to try to get, which, which is interesting to me because I think the next revenue? thing, I mean, yeah, it's gambling has become such it's become the economic lifeblood for a lot of different sports media enterprises, like the, the amount of money that's being spent on advertising there. And I don't think that we fully understand what the impact is going to be socially with all of these app driven. I'm not a gambler. I'm fascinated by gambling, but I don't gamble and I don't really like gambling, but I mean, everything that you read about the way the gambling apps work right now, they, those are the kind of things that accentuate like an app where you can gamble on the next pitch is exactly like basically tailor made for people with gambling problems. <laughs> and I, I don't know how we're going to be as a country when some of those problems that are associated with problem gambling become manifest. And we start seeing those because this is not some sort of, I'm not going to sit there and say that it's a vice that is worse than, than alcohol or other things that we allow but there are some serious social problems that come with gambling on sports. Yeah. Nope. Well, got- and, and if they, if, sorry, one quick question. No, if they, if they let a team go to Vegas, does Pete Rose finally get to go in the hall? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, love it, Matt. I agree. I love those little moments of hypocrisy. Like, okay, we're now okay with this. Are we going to let him in? Yeah. Hey, hey, like, hey I'll I'll like- hits, King. he deserves to be in. 
Yeah. Hard to look down your snoot when you're there down just two blocks down from the Luxor. (laughs) (laughs) I I got one last question for you. Danny David Moore was my favorite show. And once that show, very nice. Once that show was over, I stopped. I turned off 710. Honestly, I mean, why? Why did? Why do you think the three of you guys gelled so well together? It's a great question. I love. I love both of them, and I really did. I I loved working on that show. Um, I think we gelled because none of us took it too seriously. Um, I think that you had three personalities that interacted in very different ways, and none of us thought none of none of us took the idea of being radio hosts all that seriously we were ourselves and and the the ability to give each other a hard time came so naturally and i think it was different um i i think that that's i've always said that uh i view dave wyman as the older brother i never had and Jim is the drunk uncle that everybody should have. Um, and, and the, the, the combination, I, I, I oftentimes don't enjoy interviews of athletes um, when it comes to, and I'm not speaking about my own interviews, though that, that's included in there. But just yeah. in general, um, I think interviews of professional athletes are largely rehearsed occurrences that many times the athlete can predict the questions that are going to be asked and the host who's asking them can predict with some degree of accuracy, the answers that you'll get and interviewing guys with Jim and Dave was truly, they were unique interactions like, and it just, and I'm not sure I, I, I don't have, cause it certainly wasn't my talent as a broadcaster and it certainly was not any of our polish or understanding of it. I think it's just the way that we interacted together. Some of the the interviews that we had with guys were some of my favorite things that have happened. And then there was just the goofy things. Like I, when Jim Moore explained to us that he gave a guy $10,000 to invest in a gold machine. (laughs) I I still like, it is so it, it blows my mind. Like that's, I, then that was a significant, now that's a significant chunk of money. And it's this guy that came over and Jim described it as looking like a bong with (laughs) aluminum foil to cover the proprietary part of what would be able to process previously unprocessable ore. And as he's telling this, he's like, yeah, that was a bad decision. And I was like, (laughs) were you 10 years old? Like that's the craziest. (laughs) And like, it felt like those sort of things would happen fairly regularly. Like something would happen each and every day that you didn't expect that was truly fun and amusing. And, and I go back, like, I, I think it was just, it's, it's just the oddity of the way our three personalities interacted. Um, there there was, I, I, when I grew up, I stuttered. Um, and, and I got over that probably in grade school, but I'm not, I'm not a trained broadcaster by any stretch. And there were times that I would hem and haw or stammer. And there was one time where I did it and Jim just looked at me and goes, God, you're brutal. And it was just the funniest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) Like I wasn't, it, it wasn't, it didn't hurt my feelings. Like I thought it was just the funniest thing. I was like, you're right, man. How the hell are we here doing this? <laughs> so uh, that's I, I'm gl- I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it because I really I really did enjoy uh, it. It was my awesome time working on that show. 
Definitely. Right on. Well, we are coming up to the end of the show here. And Danny, we always end the show on an upbeat, a positive note, and we call it shout outs. So we we make sure that we go around around the table here and just, you know, mention somebody, someone, someplace, something uh, that deserves uh, deserves being heard about and uh, promoted. Uh, so definitely we're going to go ahead and go around the table here. And also uh, we're going to include you. And we'd like you to also, in addition to someone, someplace, something, or somewhere, uh, we'd also like you to promote uh, uh, your news link again uh, and uh, your Twitter, et cetera. I'll go ahead and get this started. Uh, I want to do a shout out uh, for the Crocodile Cafe, which is reopening. It's uh, going to be a new location downtown, but uh, it's where I saw a lot of great bands and a lot of bad bands. Uh, and I even saw a band called Presence United States that I thought was a bad band. Turned out they turned out to be amazing. Huh? Who knew? Yeah, they're pretty decent. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, you're up. <laughs> uh, I want to give a big welcome to uh, Robbie Ray. Welcome to the city. Uh, I'm excited to see him pitch here. Uh, he he had an amazing. I mean, I, I, I've been keeping an eye on him for a long time when he was a Diamondback and so on. And I'm um, I'm I'm excited to see him come anchor this this team. So welcome to the town, Brian. Uh, they the guys usually give me crap because I have like five or ten shout outs every show. <laughs> I, I will limit it to one. I give a shout out to my beautiful wife who whose birthday is this weekend, and I'm very blessed to have her in my life. And I love you, honey. Congratulations! That's very very sweet. And is she right off the camera <laughs> yeah. right now? No, she's not. <laughs> Over like you, Danny. I'd like to give a shout out to Tom Douglas Restaurants. Uh, I was recently back in Seattle. I actually came on back-to-back weekends to watch the University of Washington Huskies lose to the Oregon Ducks in a game that was so pathetic that I couldn't even be mad at Oregon fans. I was so filled with self-loathing and the decision of Jimmy Lake to punt, have the snap sail over the punter's head in what can only be described as instant karma. You make a decision that dumb, the ball deserves to sail out of bounds, and you deserve to wear egg completely on your face for that. But as I was back there and enjoyed, I, I found out that some of my favorite places were open again. Serious Pie, Lola, where I had a, a lovely breakfast. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to see uh, some, of, some of Seattle's restaurants. I also ate at Terra Plata up on Capitol Hill and Little Woody's which for my money is one of the better burgers in the city there at Capitol Hill. So shout out to, uh, to local Seattle businesses getting back on their feet. Um, and Abraham was nice enough to mention my newsletter, which you can subscribe to uh, at Substack. Uh, you can search my name, Danny O'Neill, uh, O-N-E-I-L at Substack, uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Danny O'Neill. Great. Well, that was our show today. We want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank Danny O'Neill for being very gracious with this time and being on this show. And uh, on behalf of Brian Solak, Matthew Page, I'm Abraham DeWeese, and we'll see you guys next week.